Nuku 38 is Kristen Vross. She is an entrepreneur, a producer, and a creative. If you have tamariki, you will likely know her best as the founder and creator of the first Māori-speaking dolls and the associated cartoon, Pipima. Kristen and her husband produce Māori language content for digital and television broadcast, and while te reo Māori is now the primary language in their home, it wasn't something she grew up with. In this episode, we talk about being unapologetically Māori, Kristen's passion for our language, our culture, and her drive to create a fully indigenous world for our tamariki and mukapuna, so te reo me ona tikanga can be a daily reality for our future generations. Whakarongo mai. Kia ora, I'm Kiane. Nuku is a movement. We're empowering indigenous wahine to be agents of change, cultivating opportunities to shape the world we want. Through this series, we're meeting 100 kick-ass indigenous wahine doing things differently. They show us how the world can be shaped by our unique indigenous voice. It's all about who we are and not who we've been told to be. Nuku, mahine, mohine, kiahine. Kia ora, Kristen Ross. Kia ora. <laughs> um, we are in the beautiful Long White Cloud Whare uh, here in Rotorua and um, having a korero with somebody who is probably more well known to my niece, nephew and my daughter um, <laughs> because she is the, the creator of Pipi Ma, um, the first Māori speaking dolls in the world. <laughs> so, tēnā koe. Tēnā koe, tēnā um, Thank you for inviting us to your uh, mahi kainga. And uh, as as you know, and as we all know, we, we always start our podcast with who are you and where are you from? So, could you please share with us a bit about your whakapapa? Yeah, tēnā koe, o tērā tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou. Ai, ko Kristen Ross tōku ingoa, uh, no muri whenua, ko Ngāti Kahute iwi, ko Ngāti Tarate Hapu, uh, ko Parapara te Marae. E rangi, kei konei au, kei Rotorua e noho ana i nānei, me taku uh, hoa rangatira, no konei aia, uh, no reira kei konei mātou e, e noho ana. Uh, ai, koe rā hau. Uh, kia ora everybody, I'm Kristen Ross, I'm from the far north, muri whenua, Ngāti Kahu is my iwi, Ngāti Tara is my tribe. And I live here with my husband and tamariki here in Rotorua. Yeah, th- three tamariki. Three tamariki. Oh, how's that? How's three Girl. tamariki? Good numbers? Is three a good number? Yeah, <laughs> I think we could do maybe a couple more, maybe. Um, no, they're awesome. I mean, our big girl, she's nine. And um, we had her on her own for five years before her little sister came through. So um, we had a good run with her first. Mm. And then uh, Marere came five years later. So she's four now. And then her little sister is two. There's only about 18 months in between them. So it was like two completely different parenting experiences. Yeah. Because Hinehui was an only child, our first child. We were young. She, We had a lot of firsts with her as well. Um, I was, became pregnant with her at university whilst we were learning te reo Māori and she was a catalyst for our house to become a reo Māori speaking home and we were pretty staunch about that. Um, and that was our life for five years with Hinehui. And then when Marere came along... Um, 
the dynamic of the house changed pretty quickly and in a good way. And 18 months later, Te Uruhuia came along and watching Marere and Te Uruhuia was very different to Hinehui because they were so close in age, they experienced the growth periods together. Mm. And so it was quite different watching them too and thinking back on um, Hinehui at that age. And even just things like uh, Hinehui going to Kohanga on her own and then being five when her next um, sibling was born. So she went to the kura tra- through the kura transition on her own, whereas Marere and Te have done everything together, gone into kōhanga together, look after each other at kōhanga. Mm. There won't be much time once Marere goes to school, Te will go and they'll experience that together and Hinuhui will be at kura as well. Mm. So it's quite, um, they're two very different experiences actually, yeah. So did you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Auckland, I grew up in GI, uh, Glen Innes. I was third generation GIN, <laughs> and um, both my uh, grandmothers, my father's mother and my mum's mother, moved to Auckland as young women and um, met my grandfathers, and they were a part of the urban drift that wanted to move into Auckland for better opportunities and uh, to provide opportunities for their tamariki and their uri. And um, GI was one place that that could happen for them. And there was a huge movement of Māori that went into Glen Innes. And the Glen Innes that my grandmother moved into and my mother grew up in was very different to the Glen Innes that I grew up in. And uh, when I go there now, I don't recognise the place Mm. at all. It's so different. And um, I think about my nan and my mum and her brothers and sisters and my dad and his brothers and sister and their upbringing in GI. And for them, uh, that was a really important place. Uh, That was a really important and integral place in their childhood. When they think about where they grew up or where they want to go home to, they have an affinity to Glen Innes, Mm. um, like I do to my marae. And it's not that, you know, we didn't go home to the marae, but that's what GI became for them. Me, I'm not so attached. Um, I mean, I'm so grateful for the experience that I had as a child in Glen Innes. And, uh, you know, when I see other GI Māori doing amazing things in the world, you know, there's, we can always look across the room and be like, <laughs> yes, my bro, yes, my sister. <laughs> and um, I think of Kitty Nathan when I think about that, yeah. when we get into rooms together and we're just like, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Very, very much GI hard, those that <laughs> grew up in GI hard. I've experienced a few of these wahine myself. <laughs> yeah, so we grew up there and um, my dad still stays in GI and I've got lots of whānau that still live there, lots who have moved out because of the um, the whole housing shift. Yeah, of housing gentrification yeah. that's happening there at yeah. the moment, yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know, I grew up in a, in a housing New Zealand whare. That mm-hmm. was my childhood. Uh, my mother was a single mother. She brought me up, um, you know, the best that she could and off gave me the opportunities that I needed to have the life that I have today. And um, for that, I'll always remember Glen Innes. And, um, and I feel aroha for the whānau who have been pushed out because that's really all that they know or that's mm. the only whenua that they have. 
um, a relationship to. Some aren't as lucky or as privileged as I am to understand where my marae is or where my hapu and iwi are and have an opportunity to go home to that place. Mm. And so I feel for those um, whānau who have been pushed out by that gentrification. And um, GI will always be a special place to me because that is where I grew up. Did you grow up in a Māori-speaking household? No. No. So I'm the first person in my whānau to speak Te Reo Māori, and I went to um, university to learn. Mm. Both Hoepa and I, we went to um, uni and decided to study Te Reo Māori. And that wasn't because we wanted a degree or uh, a qualification mm. to say that uh, we could speak Māori. It was more about filling the hole that I felt my whole life. And, you know, I remember going home up north as a child and I was fascinated with what was going on in the whare or I was mesmerised by the kaikaranga, or I wanted to just listen to the uh, whai kōrero, and I had no idea what was being said, but it felt like my safe space that I wanted to be in. And so when I actually started to learn te reo Māori, and Hoipa and I started that at uni, and then we had hinehui, it wasn't until I learned Te Reo Māori that I understood the void that I had felt my whole life mm. was that 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 was missing, and so um, I really feel like we come into our own and understood who we truly were once we learned Te Reo Māori, and um, so in my mum's whānau, I'm the first person to speak Te Reo Māori, and the same in my father's, wow. and um, but since I've learnt te reo Māori. Um, I have other whānau members now who are uh, going to university to do courses or have enrolled themselves into night classes and that's a huge thing. Even if it's a once a week mm-hmm. class, for them to mo- be motivated independently to make that decision to go and learn is a huge win in both of sides of my, my whānau. So um, yeah, that's, that's where Leo lives in my immediate whānau on both my mother and my father's side. And so um, I'm assuming, which I, it's probably a really good assumption, that all three of your tamariki are living and in, in growing up in a reo-speaking household, um, attending kohanga reo, mm-hmm. going to kura kaupapa, yeah. and that's uh, become a, a very integral part of, mm-hmm. of your life and your whānau moving forward. Mm-hmm. And um, that's exactly right. So Hinehui, she didn't speak a word of English until after she was five. Wow. And with Hinehui, it was easy because she was an only child. Um, our brothers and sisters didn't have children the same age as her at the time, so she was around adults all the time. Um, Hoepa and I were very staunch about wanting to have a Māori-speaking home, and if that meant that uh, people who didn't respect that, whether they were whānau or close friends or not, uh, we would say, don't come to our house. Mm. Or we would uh, purposely not go to gatherings or hui where we knew um, that we weren't supported. I'm not sure if we weren't supported. That's not the right word. But where people would, didn't understand our decision to tr- um, want to have a Māori-speaking home and whānau. Mm. And so at that point, um, Hoep and I were in Te Tohu Paitahi at Waikato, which is like an immersion 
a one-year immersion class where basically you go in there with absolutely no deal and in four weeks, like, you're thrown in the deep end. After four weeks, you've had an opportunity to um, dabble in... Um, you know, the simple linguistics of the language. And then after four weeks, you're expected to speak Māori 9am till 3pm, Monday to Friday. And so we were at that stage of our our learning journey. And so for us, the value of um, looking after te reo Māori and our whare was huge because we had so much to lose because we were at the beginning of the real learning journey. And if you think about the world, there's only one place in the entire world you can protect te reo Māori, and that's your home. Nobody can come into your home and tell you how to run your household. And so we were committed to making that happen. We got rid of our TV no television, and we only listened to um, Radio Wātea or things that had te reo Māori so that our own ears became accustomed to the language. And, you know, having a baby sort of accelerates all of that (laughs) because you've got nine months to get your stuff together and be ready to communicate with your child because you've made a decision to only be reo Māori. And, um, yeah, so... However, with Marere and Te Ruhuia, it's been much harder to keep Te Reo Pākehā out. And it's not that we want to keep Te Reo Pākehā out forever, but in these integral mm. first years, we want Te Reo Māori to be the main medium of communication for our whānau. And um, when they are this young and when they, when they are learning this quickly, we want that to be Te Reo Māori because... English is insidious and it's everywhere and they can hear it in other places. So I'm not worried about English. <laughs> um, and it's also it also means that te reo Māori becomes their default language. Exactly. Um, you know, my so my kōtero has a Tongan father mm-hmm. and we try and speak... Well, my poor child. She, she's got trilingual lessons going on in our whare. So, so te reo Māori, te reo Tonga, te reo Pākehā. And, but her default language, because she goes to a Pākehā preschool, is English. Mm-hmm. And you really have to push um, or you have to, even even if you ask her, you know, your pātai is i te reo Māori, she'll answer you in English and then you look at her and then she'll answer you in Māori. And she knows it, but it's that default. It's what comes out first. Yeah. Um, and when they're exposed to English at such a young age and if so many people around them are speaking it, then even though they know the kōrero, even though they know kupu i te reo Māori, i te reo tonga, i te reo whatever, um, yeah, it is. it is, does become like that, eh? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that's so important that it's their default language. And I'm so glad you spoke about that because when um, henehui or marere or te ruhuia are upset or they're crying or they're happy, their way of communicating by default is te reo Māori. Mm. And that is how they know how to express themselves. And I'm really proud about that because... Um, that is something that I didn't have in my childhood or around me. And I had to take a degree to learn my own language. And my tamariki have um, a world where it is their reality and it's their normality. Mm. And I'm just, I'm actually <coughs> really proud about that. Mm. And it, it's, it's um, I feel you on that. I feel you to the point where... Um, 
like I sit here and look at you and how far you've come in your real journey and I'm not even there yet. I'm not even where you are. And as a mama who is trying to raise their baby as a proud indigenous, you know, wahine, um, that is able to blend into the, the dual, I say dual cultures, her Tongan and Māori culture. <laughs> um, and I'm envious of her father because her father has has that Tongan reo that he has had since birth and his parents speak to her only in Tongan and then she has her mother who, you know, tries really hard. <laughs> My reo is probably just, if, if she, you know, once she gets older than kohanga, that's probably about it. I, I've got to keep learning with her. And, um, you know, my my parents, my mother is not fluent and, and has even less real than I do. And so, um, yeah, no, congratulations on, on, on feeling that proud. You should. Yeah, and, you should and, feel that proud. <laughs> and I don't think you should um, not think that you're doing enough for mm. te reo, for your baby too, because te reo Māori can't sit in isolation on its own. It needs to be surrounded by whakaro Māori and tikanga Māori. And what you do here with Nuku, um, she's watching. Mm. What you do at Ihumatao on the whenua, she's watching. And so when she comes to a point in her life where she's actually ready to maybe learn te reo independently as an adult, as a young woman, a young girl at high school, wherever she is, the seeds that you've planted with um, mahi around nuku, what you do on the whenua, those will help her accelerate through that process uh, rather than starting from a completely blank canvas because she has a Māori lens. Mm. She has a Tongan lens. Um, she has an Indigenous lens. So when she comes to a point where she's ready to full-on immerse herself in te reo Māori, you guys might do it together, you've already set the foundations for her to make that transition mm-hmm. easier. And, and talking about our tamariki, actually, it's a very nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that um, I just loved was the fact that I could buy my pepe a Māori-speaking doll. <laughs> and uh, I want to talk to you about pepe ma and where this idea of pepe ma came from. What was the journey that led you to the pepe ma kaupapa? Um, hinehui. It was hinehui and that whole decision to... Uh, create a Māori-speaking home. And we were so young and naive and just kuare men, like no idea. Never had a baby, let alone trying to revive a language in your house. And um, we learnt very quickly after she was um, born how isolated we were because of the decisions we had made to become a real Māori-speaking home. And we became isolated, one, because our whānau didn't speak te reo Māori, our, a lot of our friends didn't speak te reo Māori or they didn't have children the same age um, and even the television was one. Um, before we got rid of the TV, what we wanted to do, and this is when Freeview was still kind of, there was no Apple TV, there was no, you know, <laughs> it was just Freeview or Sky, that was yeah. kind of it. And so um, the reason we got rid of the TV was because we could see that Hinehui was becoming um, more and more interested in channels like the Disney Channel or Nickelodeon, Disney Junior, all those kinds of things. And I was like, no, like, she's learning how to use the remote. She can't (laughs) navigate to these places. It will undo everything. What's going on? Get rid of the TV kind of thing. And at the time... um, 
Māori television had cartoons going, but they were old. Like they were like one of them was Pippi Longstockings, like from the, a cartoon yeah. from the eighties. And then they just do the Māori voiceover, oh, Māori voiceovers, mm. and then they had like um, Mr. Ed. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, and, yeah. and I was just like, where are other cool shows for our babies? Yeah, and that's an example of us being isolated um, or trying to be pulled back into the seventies or something. And like, look. I know that um, I'm not bagging Māori television and what they do as a service for um, Māori content, but if you look at the funds for Māori content and mainstream content, there's a huge difference. Yeah. So, you know, Māori TV and our networks like that can only do so much with the money that they have. But if we accept that, there's no moving forward. And at that point, Hoip and I were like, you know what? We need our own cartoon, man. Like, we need our own cartoon that reflects the realities of our tamariki. Mr. Ed? No. Mm. Um, Puppy Longstockings? No. No cultural connection, no reality um, reflection. And so we started thinking about Pippi Ma, and at that time when we started thinking about it, Pania Papa Ma, Te Heketu, um, Blake, they started working on um, Tora Ma Tatoa. And so um, Dora came out translated, mm. and Hinehui loved it. She was just like, oh my God. And at the time, Dora was a uh, um, cartoon of the was the cartoon yeah, of was the, the minute, that was you the, know? It was the in cartoon. That was the in cartoon. And the in haircut. <laughs> so that was already a growth mm. from the cartoons and the things that were on TV, like Pippi Longstockings and Mr. Ed. Like the fact that Māori TV had grown from that to then acquire shows like Dora, The Explorer, or um, SpongeBob, Tarau Purofa, um, The Bubble Guppies, all those shows. It was bringing the language into the mm. now. And then um, it was the perfect stepping stone for Pipima because we saw the growth happening in increments. When sometimes growth happens too quickly, the world can get a bit shocked because they're not kind of ready. So to have Tora Matatoa, SpongeBob Tarau Purofa proceed Pipima, it was the perfect sort of stepping stone. And so, um, yeah, we thought about, okay, cool. There's Dora, SpongeBob, Bubble Guppies, amazing. What's the step, the next step from there? And so came about Pipima. And um, we started um, looking into how we could create this cartoon, how we could do it. Um, looking for places to find funds. We were still at uni at the time. We were um, both doing our masters wow. by this stage. And um, I said to Hoipa, what if I study this as my masters? I said to Hoipa, what if I study this as my masters, you know, so we can still complete the degree, but work towards this cartoon, actually get some insight about how we make it happen and um, get some backing behind us, some research to show, <laughs> yes, we know what we're doing. We're validating all of this with <laughs> research. Yeah, and so um, I ended up taking that COPA before my Master of Arts and I wrote a thesis um, actually analysing the benefits and... Um, 
the places where we could take our own stories by assessing tōra mātātoa. So I worked with Pania on my thesis, um, looking at the benefits of translating works like tōra mātātoa. And the last part of that research was showing that we needed to make our own cartoons. Mm. The biggest thing at the time was um, backlash that came from my thesis and from our whakaaro to do pipima was um, everybody was saying it couldn't be done because it's too expensive. Animation is the most expensive genre. There's no way you're going to find money to do that. I There was even an interview by a reporter (laughs) who shall remain nameless on this podcast, (laughs) but I'm sure if they ever listen, they'll know who they are, Um, who was interviewing someone else and said, oh, you know, there's this girl at Waikato University who's saying we need our own cartoons, but I'm I'm sure she's um, not... uh, realistic about the costs that it takes to make animation. And I was wild. I was actually livid about that um, that interview about my master's mm-hmm. because I just thought, oh, my God, like why are we creating walls for ourselves? Because that was a Māori reporter speaking to another Māori talent speaking about my thesis. Wow. And I just thought, you know, where there's no development if we do this to ourselves, like why would you put out an interview like that? That's what I felt at the time. When I look back now, though, I think, oh, you know, you know, the animation is expensive. It truly is expensive. But if we accept that that is where it stops, then there's no growth. And um, we tried to find money to make the cartoon. Nobody wanted to give us any. And then um, Te Tauraferi gave us some money through Matereo to make uh, Tai, the app, which was like a memory game teaching colours. That was happening and then when we couldn't get any money to make the cartoon and because I had done it through my thesis, we already had the characters drawn, we had done all the development, the story, the backstory to each character, storylines for episodes. It had all be done through the masters. And Hohepa said to me one day, um, what if we make toys? Like, I could just send these pictures of these characters to, like, a factory somewhere in China or wherever, whoever makes toys, and, like, we could make Māori-speaking dolls. And honestly, I was like, I can't see it. Like, <laughs> no, I can't see it. Like, no, um, no. I think we still need to do animation. And he was like, no, honestly, hun, like, I reckon it will be awesome. And I actually didn't see it when he said it. And so um, he actually sent... Pito Portiki, the first drawing, concept drawing of Pito Portiki to about five factories in China. And he didn't tell me that he had done that. And one about a month later or two months later or however long later it was, we were in our whare in Hamilton and um, the courier came and a box came and, and Hohepa, Henehui and I were at home and I was pregnant with Marire at the time. And um, the box came and Hohepa said, here, hun, open this. And so we sat down and I opened it and there was this really hideous Pito Portiki doll. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> it was so ugly. And anyway, we pulled it out and um, he said, press the left hand. And I pressed it and Hinehui was not with us at the table, but in the lounge. 
And I pressed it and it said, Kia ora, ko pitau pōtiki tōku ingoa. And she spun around quicker than I've ever seen before. And her whole face just lit up and she was so intrigued. What is that? Mm. She was four years old at the time. And she come over and she sat with that doll for so long. Mm. And that was when I knew, okay, this is going to work. Yeah, it's going to work. And we only envisioned creating Pippi Ma for Fano like ours who had made this d- decision to be a Māori speaking home and we're lacking resources and support to create a real world for a child mm. and what do children want they want to play and we were like what toys do we have what what do we what and frozen was huge at the time and um, I said to Hopa why did you think about making a doll and he said remember when we were at um, Farmers and Hinehui had that frozen doll and she was pushing it and it was singing let it go let it go <laughs> and she was just mesmerised by it he was mm. like when I saw her do that I thought far out what if we had a Māori doll that did that <laughs> and that's how Pupima came to be and when we launched um we didn't know what we were doing. Like we had never had a business before. We had never done any marketing or we didn't know how to use social media to push Pipima, push the kopapa to the mm. world. And um, when it did launch, we were shocked at how many people wanted a Pippi Ma doll. So how many times did you sell out? Oh, honestly, just like <laughs> all the time. Like, oh my God, it's keeping on top. And as a small business with no capital, you know, like you've got to juggle, oh my God, there's this huge demand. Mm. I've got no money. Like, how do I make more dolls and bring them in faster into the country to feed these whānau? And we had envisioned, as I said, Māori speaking whānau with kids that were in kōhanga, um, that they use te reo Māori every day in the home. And in fact, majority of the people that buy Pipima are people who don't have the reo or they are disconnected from their Māori tanga or they are wanting to find ways to introduce te reo Māori into the home and um, don't know where to start or what to do. Australia is... Uh, a huge part of our market because we now have whānau over there who have been there for three or four generations and two of those generations have never been back to Aotearoa. Wow. And so um, the demand was huge Mm. and uh, we were shocked at how quickly it was taken up. And all the naysayers... All the naysayers along the way before launch, you know, some of our whānau, our closest friends were like, oh, yeah, but who's going to buy that? Or, you know, the Māori population of New Zealand is only 13% and then about 3% of that speak te reo Māori and then of that 3%, who actually wants to buy it? And I was thinking, well, I don't care because if 10 whānau buy it and they get something that's awesome for their tamariki like we do for hinehui, like we have for hinehui, then that's fine by me. And so, um, yeah, that's... I don't care. Now my dolls are sold out. (laughs) (laughs) You go and sit over there with your Barbie. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the the type of whānau now that um, buy Pipima... And the feedback that we get about Pipima being the instigator to conversational um, mm. language in the home, language use in the home is awesome. And because 
when you unpack that, you th- you start to think, why do these little dolls um, bring Fano so much joy around the Ma- around the Māori language? And that's because they're learning in a safe environment in the privacy of their own home through play with their children. So it's not like entering a classroom at a university where you know nobody and you feel judged as soon as you open your mouth or you feel judged for even walking in the room because I'm a Māori and why am I coming to university to learn Māori? And so Pumima removes all of that through play. And it gives you, you know, when you're sitting down watching with your tamariki, you're learning, they're learning. The thing, the thing I love about it is that um, Pippi has a has poi, and my daughter <laughs> loves poi. And so there's actually a doll that looks mm. like her has mm. things that she loves, mm. um, and those things are really important. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And like you know, I remember when we first launched as well. There was a lot of corridor all about why does Huda have um, green hair, and why does oh. Pito Portiki have blue hair, and oh, they're a bit fair, or oh, that one's a bit dark. And I just, you know, I just kind of thought, wow, what is your image of a Maori doll? Like, mm. is it the pew pew and the red, black and white? It's yeah. Pretty- 17, 16, I think, 2016 at the time. And I just thought, no, 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 no. Me tō mai ene ahuaranga ki te ao hou. And the comparison and using all of those bright colours and staying away from the red, whites and black, that was intentional to stay away from the red, whites and black, um, was actually about the pop culture around cartoons and merchandising and toys. Why do, I, why do our children love Frozen? Um, tora mata toa. They want the bag. They want the lunchbox. They want the toothbrush. It's because um, we're using the best elements of pop culture, and if that's colours on the products, or um, you know, being being a champion for imagination by having a doll that has green hair mm-hmm. or blue hair, um, there's nothing wrong with that. And also, n- not all Maori look the same. We're not all. Fair, or we're not all. Some of us do have blue hair and green hair, and (laughs) exactly, you know. Mm. So um, yeah, it was really important to have different representations across the dolls. And Titoki, when um, Henehui and Marere were born, they were blonde as. And Marere is four years old and still has blonde hair, and Henehui has like a dark brown blondie hair. And, um, you know, are they less Māori because their hair is not dark or black? No. And so to reflect their reality, those things need to be reflected in the way the dolls look. Mm. So tell me a little bit about some of the other mahi you do because Pipima is what we what we know you for, um, but that's not all you do. No. <laughs> so uh, we make um, television and digital media as well. And so when the dolls did launch, we were like, let's put that application back in for the cartoon. (laughs) And we put it in and boom, you know, we had a proven market and audience. Mm. And Te Maangai Paho were awesome and gave us the funds to make the first season of um, Pipima. And at that time, we had one other production up our sleeve that we had completed, which was Rere Te Fiu. Rere Te Fiu was our pilot production that launched us into the world of film and television. And again, that Rere Te Fiu was born out of necessity because as Māori speakers, um, I wanted to watch shows in a range of genre 
in Te Reo Māori, not in English and Te Reo Māori and not in Te Reo Māori with subtitles, just in Te Reo Māori for mm. entertainment's sake. That's it. And, um, you know, a lot of fluent content sits in news and current affairs or doco style shows like Wakahuya profiling our Komatua Kuya. Um, but when I st- started thinking about what I wanted to watch because I had learnt Te Reo Māori as a, you know, 22-year-old woman, I didn't want to watch my nan. Oh, <laughs> you know, I wanted to watch yeah. romance in Te Reo Māori. I wanted to watch... I want to see the drama. Yeah, I want to watch drama. I want to watch horror. I want to watch animation. Like, whatever I want to watch. And I want to be able to do it in Te Reo Māori. And so... Um, that was what sort of drove us into the world of film and television was necessity as the audience. And um, Rere Te Fiu was an amazing, uh, sorry, came off the back of a, an amazing initiative from Te Maungai Paho to bring new people into the industry because film and television is very hierarchical. Mm. You've got to work your way up. It's very hard to get your foot in the door. It's very clicky. Very clicky, <laughs> incestuous and, you know, Te Maungai Paho thought back in 2016, okay, let's do a, an initiative that brings in green people into our industry, give them an opportunity, and let's see what they go, where they go. And what they wanted was 20 pilots for 10K each, and um, the best five pilots of those were going to go into full production for a season. They were going to receive funding mm-hmm. for a season. So we entered into that, and our pitch was Rere Te Fiu, which was like a skit, magazine uh, skit-based comedy showing people how to use kiwaha um, idioms because as a language learner kiwaha are so hard to learn because you need context to understand how Mm. they're used if you think of a second language English learner when they hear you are the apple of my eye they're going to be thinking, how the hell did you get an apple Why in your the, eye? Why are the apples in your eye? Say, <laughs> the penny has dropped. They're probably going to look to the floor <laughs> trying to find the penny. And so we have those kiwaha in Te Reo Māori as well. And at university or in wānanga style, usually the way you learn kiwaha is on a piece of paper with a box full of kiwaha and then sentences underneath with gaps. So you and can you pick... A couple into the gap. <laughs> yes, which kiwaha fits where. Mm. But kiwaha idiomatic sayings are so, like, hidden and veiled by words that actually don't relate to the feeling that they're expressing. Mm. It's hard to grasp as a second language learner. And so Redetifu was a whakaro around creating a skip-based comedy and using comedy and humour to um, teach people context of kiwaha and not be a teaching show because we didn't want to be teacher-student type Mm. thing, but more about using humour and different... um, Couple makeups. So we had a komatua, kuia duo. We had two young boy duo. We wanted a lot of different representation to show a lot of different contexts and how we can use kiwaha. And so um, we did that in the pilot and um, they funded it. It was one of the five that they funded and that was how we moved into the world of film and television. And then Pippi Ma was the second production. Um, and here we are five years later now making film and television and, um, yeah, that's wow. what we do. And so you're on your fourth season of Pipima? 
Yep, we're on the fourth season of Pippi Ma. Um, Hang on, I thought it was uh, too expensive and too hard to make, so <coughs> Kia ora. <coughs> put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, choice. Yeah, so fourth season of that, and um, and you know the initial fakaro around being able to watch uh, content in Te Reo Māori in a range of genre. Um, we that's really what we want to do as a production company and as producers and, and, and creatives. And lots of people try and box you in to genre in film and television. Mm-hmm. I know, but what do you make? What do you like to make? <laughs> Is it documentary? Is it drama? Animate kids, children? And, you know, Pippuma was such a massive explosion into the world. That's what people know us as and they think that we only want to make children's television or animation when actually, no, I want to make shows in a range of, of mm. places. And so so came um, our edutainment shows like Living by the Stars with uh, Rangi Mata Mua. Uh, and that's about us actually owning our own stories and being the ones to tell them and not having our stories being told by other people. Mm. Um, I'm sick of that. I'm tired of it. And um, we need to, Māori need to tell Māori stories. And I don't mean that Māori are dotted all over uh, other production company in the key in roles so that they can say that Māori are on the production, Māori are informing these places. At the, end of the, at the end of the day, the IP of that story belongs to that company. And so how do we own our stories in this industry? And um, that's what Hoib and I want to do across all of our productions is be the people to tell our own stories because we have the mandate to do that, no mm. one else. Mm. Um, I'm just getting like an... an in, entwined in your corridor <laughs> that I'm not even thinking ahead to my next part. I <laughs> it's just like yes, you're so right. Yes, <laughs> we do need to. Um, when I, I I'm uh, I'm thinking about the current media climate in Aotearoa and the current climate of producing Indigenous programming, Indigenous film, and around the I mean, currently post COVID, film is is not uh, something that um, has been focused on given that cinemas haven't been opened and, and those mm. types of things. However, television and digital platforms have been soaring over this period. Mm. Um, and there are there are some amazing Indigenous um, filmmakers, television makers around the world, women of colour, um, but still very few of them. Mm. I feel like in Aotearoa that they're, well, from the outside, I see there's quite a few television production um, businesses, organisations who work in different areas, but are there enough wahine, indigenous storytellers who are creating stories, who are actually out there making that mahi? Um, Because there might be a lot that work for these businesses and work for these organisations, but they're not necessarily at the top of them leading them. Mm, I think, yes. Yes, there are a lot of women in film and television mm. um, that are contributing to Māori content. There's, there's heaps in my head. Actually, I have more women in my head at the moment than I do I men. I asked that question, I was like, hang on, I'm p- picking them all off as I can see their faces. Yeah, um, <laughs> they can, all their faces are popping through my head at the moment. You know, um, you know, we've got our big names like Chelsea Wynne Stanley. Mm. That is like 
the tip of the iceberg to reach that that height. And oh, then we, also a nuku wahine. I know, I know. <laughs> and, um, you know, as a producer, that's, she's someone that I feel like, oh, my goodness, mm-hmm. like to be an uh, Oscar-nominated Māori producer, uh, Māori woman in America wearing Kitty Nathan, another nuku woman, um, <laughs> is just incredible, you know. And then we've got Hanel Harris, who's doing amazing she's loud doing amazing things. Amazing yep. things. And she's unapologetic about what she wants to do, and mm. I love it. I'm just like, you do you, girl. I love it. And, you know, some of the people that I, I, Hoiapa and I have learnt off since moving back to Rotorua, um, Lara Northcroft, She's been in the game for a long time. Nicholas Smith, um, Navak Rogers. There's actually so many. Mm-hmm. There's actually so many women doing things for Māori content in our industry. And, um, you know, they might. not all of them are working independently for themselves. Not all of them are... Um, uh, uh, yeah, are working independently for themselves. They might be in other companies and things like that, but they all are working towards the promotion and building of Māori mm. content. And so I actually think there's a lot of women doing a lot of things and, yeah. I think a lot... Um, I think a lot about the media landscape uh, and this idea of mainstream and Māori in that... Um, you know, we have one Māori television station. We, While we have the iwi radio network, it comes under, you know, different iwi stations around the country, but it comes under one mm. sort of network. Um, and that might be getting narrower as we go through the recent review um, of Māori media. But I think about how much we need to have Māori content in mainstream. And if I look at it from a journalism perspective, you know, we learn a lot uh, when you study journalism and when you write for ethical um, mm. <laughs> fair, uh, newspapers and magazines, um, <laughs> you actually learn about balance. <laughs> Just take a dig here. <laughs> you learn a lot about balance and, and balancing of, of stories. Um, and what I find here in Aotearoa is that uh, our mainstream content is very uh, Western. It is very negative around yes. Indigenous storytelling. Um, and yes. it is very, very white. And I say very white from a uh, perspective of being Western, being very... Um, not removed. Una- not removed. That's the word. That's the kupu I'm looking for. Very removed. And doesn't reflect my lived experience, doesn't reflect the lived experience of many of the people that I know. And so when you turn on the television, you don't see yourself. Mm-hmm. When I turn on Māori television um, or when I listen to Māori radio, I do see myself, but then I also see uh, almost, not the opposite, but of, yes, yeah. yeah. And you see, you see the other side of it and you're just like, okay, how do we get, instead of one... Each of these things balancing each other. How do you get balance within themselves? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, how how do we get your? Where do we need to get in this country, in this industry? Where do we need to be to get your programming, to get things that you and other amazing wahine are making on mainstream television? Mm-hmm. And is that even important to you? Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. Like, I'm so glad we've arrived to this conversation, this part of the conversation, because, um, you know, 
You're absolutely right about how we're portrayed on mainstream. And I hate the word mainstream as if Māori is like some little side street. Yeah, we're the other. It's like main awa. It's like this little manga that goes off into a pond somewhere else. Like, no. But for lack of a better word, um, Māori voice um, and perspective lens, mm. the Māori worldview is important on those place, in those places. And I don't, like... Māori worldview is actually so important and I'll speak to it based on the work that we do and um, we make fluent content. So I've only ever made one bilingual show. We are committed to making 100% real Māori content and um, I can't find people to write the scripts, I can't find people to do this because the skill set just isn't there in the industry at the moment and so... Um, Hoipa and I end up writing the scripts all the time or we pull in some of our friends from um, um, Te Whare Wānanga or Te Panikere Tanga to help us and, and try and grow them as well mm. if that's something that they want to pursue um, to help grow a real Māori production industry. Um, and it's so important because there are many people making Māori story but the scripts are being written in English and then translated into Māori. And with that movement, already we lose five layers of intent mm. because the English script is written with an English lens. And um, Hoipa and I are advocates of writing Māori story from a Māori, um, from te reo Māori first. If it's a real Māori show, I'm talking about. Mm. If it's a real Māori show, if the end product is going to be a real Māori show, it needs to follow that path from the very from the first creative table. And when we write it in English and then translate it, we've already um, we've already compromised the Māori worldview by starting with them. Because your thought process is in English. No, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. When you exactly. do it that way, your thought process is English. Yes. And so the thinking of the content, the thinking of how the sentences are structured, the thinking of the kupu that you're using is already an English vocabulary. Exactly. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm really tired of the perpetuation of drugs, alcohol, gang, abuse storylines mm. in mainstream media when it re relates to Māori. Um, and, you know, it might not be as um, graphic as Once Were Warriors once was. And that was a, that was, we needed Once Were Warriors at that time of our, you know, film and television lifetime as Māori. But we need to also move on from that too, not keep sticking to those storylines. Like, what's the next part? And I was once told that we need those for drama, otherwise it wouldn't be drama. And I was shocked wow. to hear that from um, a Māori saying that because I thought, no, 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 we don't need drugs and alcohol and gang and abuse and, you know, um, domestic violence to for drama. To portray <laughs> drama. Marai Kitchen, you can get a lot of drama in there. <laughs> exactly. You know, those are, like, we need to move on from those storylines. Mm. And um, I will never, ever make a show that perpetuates any of that because um, when it's in a mainstream platform, we have the ability to change perceptions and attitudes towards our people. And so... 
let's just say I want to make a show called Wainanga that travels to Māori wineries to learn about the whenua that the grapes are growing on, the whānau behind the bottle, and what it means to be a wine connoisseur. Already by making a show like that, we are defragmenting the um, association of alcohol to Māori as being an, a catalyst for abuse or mm. um, thing. And actually, it realigns alcohol to Māori to success, entrepreneurism, business, import, export. And we have the ability to do that by just by little simple things like that, changing the way we associate things to our people and our culture and the way we are. Do we need to put a clause in trademark that uh, idea that you just put out there? <laughs> yeah, you hit it here first, mama. No. <laughs> but it's exactly that, and it's and it's um, it's almost like you expect a show like that to be made about Pakia. Exactly, and we don't even think it. Twice. We just go, oh my god! And in fact, there is a show like that. It's called the New Zealand um, Wine Show or something, yeah. you know. And it's just like, oh, okay, mm. so we can do that too, guys. Um, actually, Maori winemakers uh, contribute huge to the export industry, food and beverage, mm. and you know, um, we should be highlighting that and doing things like that. Shift the attitude and the perspectives about Maori. Especially when it's on mainstream platforms mm. like that. When I think about, um, or when when we, when you, <laughs> think about the industry at a higher level, mm-hmm. so uh, out of the those that are producing and making, but the next step up, those mm-hmm. decision makers who mm-hmm. decide where the funding goes, who decide what gets on the television, who decide mm-hmm. all of that sort of stuff, even to the point of your minister mm-hmm. um, of the, these platforms and this um, industry, what changes do they need to make to enable this change to happen at the level that you're working at? That's a really difficult question because there are generations of filmmakers and when we talk about governance level, there is a generation that sits there. Um, Not all are like that. Um, Let me speak about Te Mangai Paho. Larry Pa is actually really... um, really encouraging of new and innovative ways Mm. of producing and getting content out there. So that's exciting. And, you know, he's an elderly man, well, you know, of the older generation, and he is thinking like that. That's awesome. We need people like that in those positions making decisions. Um, If I liken it to te reo Māori, if I think about my mum's generation, Um, There are still aunties and uncles who, even though I live a life based and that revolves around te reo Māori, they still have qualms about living a full te reo Māori life. Like, yeah, but what about when you want to do this? Or what about when you want to do that? And they have their own barriers, Mm -hmm. internal barriers about that type of lifestyle. It's the same in the film and television industry. There are some people who think we still need other people to validate our stories, or we need that person to make our story because they've got all the resource, or they're the ones who have the relationships at the networks, or they have this here. When actually, if we pulled all Māori who are dotted around all those people in the film and industry places and we pulled them all out and said, no, 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 come, let's just do our own storytelling, those those stories wouldn't live. Mm. They, wouldn't, they wouldn't be anywhere. And so um, 
I think there's a, a, a shift in thinking around um, our industry as well, and this might be very controversial for some um, filmmakers or producers in Māori content, but I think this generation of um, filmmaking is tired of compromising and tired of um, looking for validation from other people to mm. tell our own stories. And when I say this, I think about her now. She's loud, she's unapologetic, and she will do what she needs to do to get her story made the way she wants to tell it. And I admire that. And I feel like we need more um, people like that at the governance level, the people who are making decisions about where the money goes and where it's spent. We need unapologetic people up there as well because um, that type of culture filters through the different layers of the industry and it will eventually come down to the people who are on the ground making the content. Mm. And so I think, yeah, it's probably that. The problem with making that happen is the people who probably should be in those positions are also making amazing shows and making amazing content. And it's it's figuring out when the transition comes from making the content to moving to that higher level to ensure that the type of content you are making is perpetuated in the future. Mm. I'm actually excited about the Māori Media Review. I mean, there's things I could um, amu amu about for the rest of the afternoon about it as well. Um, but I think by having the Māori Media Review and ruffling a few feathers, because there have been some feathers that are, have been very ruffled, <laughs> is actually a good thing because it puts back into perspective, it makes everybody refocus and reassess why they're doing what they're doing and what the goal is. Mm. And so regardless of what happens with the outcome of the media review, the whole industry and Māori have been forced into a position to think, okay, what's the long-term strategy? What am I doing as a producer? How does my work as a producer feed into that strategy, which inevitably feeds into the way this review happens for our um, our industry mm-hmm. and for Māori content? Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, we could talk all day. We could talk all day about that, you know. (laughs) And I just want to say one last thing about the Māori Media Review is that um, regardless of opinions of of networks or not, te reo Māori and Māori voice, Māori face and Māori perspective should not be lost on the mainstream channels. Mm. Um, They should not go away from those spaces and we should not get rid of our network um, but we should instead review of how it can be improved. I mean, um, there's a lot of um, court it all going on about where shows or where content is going to end up or not end up and people aren't doing this and aren't doing that. But really, um, we can't afford to lose the Māori voice in any space at all. And we also can't be seen in a public forum scrapping each other. Mm. We actually need to be um, sophisticated in the way that we carry out this review and how we speak to each other in the media Mm. because at the end of the day, the importance is Māori voice and Māori voice in all of the spaces that exist. And that's what should always be the goal. Mm. Yeah. And it's it's that same 
it's that idea that, oh, well, let's just leave them over there. They're going to fight each other and let them fight themselves while we just carry on growing, mm-hmm. and, you know, on this side. Um, but I totally agree with you. We need Māori voice, Māori face, Māori stories everywhere. And mm-hmm. um, the more places, the better. And even if things are amalgamated in one point or, you know, things get shifted around, that shouldn't stop people from being that face, that voice, mm-hmm. that show, that thorn in the side yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> everywhere else because we don't want to lose that no. we don't want to lose the traction we've already made but we always need to up our game Yeah, all the time we always need to up our game and how can we be better how can we be more innovative how can we use digital technologies better how can we you know mm-hmm. have platforms that are more accessible for those that are um, accessing information in this way and, and the world is moving and shifting and, and so we must follow as well. We can't continue to go down... Um, we, we can't, There are always spaces for traditional pathways but we can't rely on that no. solely. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And we can't, we can't um, settle on that. Mm. We always have to be thinking about what is the next move? What is the next growth phase? Mm. Where do we go from here? Because if we sit complacent we become mediocre in every sense of the word in all parts of our life or whatever industry or whatever we're contributing to, we will stay stagnant. And so if there are not people thinking about what is the next move, then we will sit in still water. Mm. Um, I'm going to pivot us just slightly because, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, we will end up talking will, about this for too long. Go, you got go. you got two media people sitting here <laughs> when you have a really good corridor about media. Um, who are some Indigenous women or who was an Indigenous woman that has inspired you in your life's journey mm. or even in p- different parts of your journey? And I know you already mentioned a few of them. Yeah, yeah. I think, like... Um, I think different women have different uh, influence over me in different parts of my life. Mm. When I think of myself as a young girl, as a child, I was infatuated with my aunties. And um, they were immediate aunties, distant aunties. If I was on the marae, I wanted to be around them. I wanted to be around them when they were mothering their children and I loved babies. And they, um, I just looked up to my aunties, I thought they were all so beautiful and I wanted to be around them always mm-hmm. and weekends I couldn't get out of my house faster, I'd ask my mom if I could go to Auntie Roimata's or could I go to Auntie Colleen's or anywhere, you know, I was really uh, infatuated with them. And then um, as a young woman, I think as a young teenager probably, I became more and more inspired, but I don't think I realised at the time how inspired I was Mm. by her. Um, I became more and more inspired, and I understand that now looking back as a teenager and a young woman, by my mum's sister, Jean. And she was the first person in my whānau to go to university, and she became a lawyer. And when you're a little girl in the Housing New Zealand house in Gleninus, having an auntie that becomes a lawyer is very inspirational. And you, I used to imagine her being in the courtroom yelling, Objection! <laughs> Objection! <laughs> Your Honour! And banging the table like on the movies. That's how I imagined her being in the courtroom. Mm. And, I mean, it was very far removed from that. It, was, it wasn't actually what she was doing. She didn't become a criminal barrister until much later in her life. But... Um, 
that was pretty inspiring, you know, to have an, an auntie go to university and become a lawyer. And, you know, when you're not really, you know, as a child, we get, we get told about these um, places that we should reach, these summits we should reach. And I remember as a child being a lawyer or a doctor or, yeah, lawyers and doctors was like the creme of the crop cream of the crop there with the pinnacle and so to have an auntie that was a lawyer was just like what she's my auntie and so she was um inspirational to me and she was also the head girl of tamaki college and then i became the head girl of Sowan college and i i i thought about her and um I also want to talk about my uncle Christopher here too because he was the head boy of Tamaki College too mm. and he actually died when he was 19 wow. on the rugby field at Tamaki College and um, he um, he was younger, he was the youngest of my mum's brothers and sisters and he, you know, uh, succeeded Pretty Jean as, um, <laughs> as head boy and um, when he died, my mum... Um, fell pregnant not long after and she said, okay, well, I'm going to name this baby after Christopher. And she didn't know if I was a boy or girl and, of course, I was born and I was not a Christopher. So my name became Kristen and I'm named after my Uncle Christopher. And so when I became the head girl of Salon College, I thought about my Auntie Jean, Pretty Jean is mm. what we, she used to make us call her Pretty Jean, <laughs> not Auntie Jean. I thought about Pretty Jean and I thought about Uncle Christopher and um, how my mum chose to name that to me, Kristen, mm. after Christopher and how a name could write the future. Mm. And, you know, as Māori, we understand the power of naming our children. And sorry, I kind of digress. But so so Pretty Jean was, um, yes, an influence in my life. And she, she remained an influence in my life until she died, you know, um, almost two years ago now. And I, she, um, she was a hard woman. She was pretty hard, but she would sit quietly in the back and just sort of go, yeah, good on you, my niece. But wouldn't tell you, but you knew she was mm. proud. And so when she got really sick and I spent a lot of time with her at the end there, um, that was when I really realised you have been a huge inspiration <laughs> In my life. Mm. I really love her for that. And I hope that um, she didn't have any children. So I hope what I'm doing is enough of a legacy for her mm. that she left behind. So she's someone that inspires me. Um, moving on from my teenage years or um, young as a young woman, and I went to um, university and started learning Te Reo Māori. I started learning about, um, you know, all these amazing people doing amazing things for revitalization of Te Reo Māori. And, um, thank you. And um, when I first met Hōhepa, which is 14 years ago now, <laughs> um, we were young, you know, young adults, no children, living a carefree life in Auckland, and he said to me, oh, do you want to go and meet my auntie? And I said, oh, yeah, okay, come on then. <laughs> and so we went from, we lived in Pamua at the time, and um, we went to meet his auntie, and she lived in Titirangi, 
and she had a beautiful big whare up in the bush in the Waitakere ranges out and then I thought, whoa, who is this auntie? Like, <laughs> whoa. And we walked in the house and um, I met her and it was Te Haumihiata Mason. And I didn't know who she was at the time. She was just my partner's hus- uh, auntie who I was going to meet. And I remember going into the whare and listening to her speak and she was speaking te reo Māori and at the time we didn't understand te reo Māori mm. and I was so mesmerised by her. Like I just remember thinking, this lady has the most beautiful reo and I didn't understand reo at the time and I just had such an affinity to her as soon as I met her and at the time she was actually um, working on a dictionary and um, I had no idea what the dictionary was. Honestly, I was so cool. Aria. I was just like, <laughs> have a cup of tea with my partner's auntie. <laughs> and um, I remember Hohepa said to her, Auntie, will, will you teach um, me and Kristen how to speak Māori? She goes, Oh, look, nephew, no, I won't. You've got to go and you've got to learn yourself and you've got to go and find Te Reo Māori yourself, Hohepa. And we were just like, oh, goodness, okay. <laughs> and I remember leaving there, like, not really understanding that reaction from mm. her. And then it was the next year that we actually went to university and started learning te reo Māori. And then I learned who te hau mihiata really was <laughs> in the world of Māori language. And I couldn't believe that I had access to this woman. Um, who has done such amazing work for the revitalization of te, of te reo Māori um, as an auntie, like mm. just an auntie that you go and have a cup of tea with. And I would watch people um, get shy and nervous around her because of, you know, um, the work that she's done. And I would just be, I would feel so lucky. I feel so lucky and I feel so grateful to have her in my life because... She is someone who I aspire to be in terms of te reo Māori and the way the reo falls off her tongue and lands on your ears is how I want people to feel when I speak te reo Māori. Mm. And so Te Hau Mihiata Mason is a huge influence in my life too and still is today. And, you know, I look back to the day when uh, we went to Titirangi for a cup of tea and the dictionary she was actually working on was He Pātakakupu, mm. which was the first Māori full immersion um, dictionary. And um, I look back on that day when Hoiba said, Auntie, will you teach us how to speak Māori? Just kuare, eh? Like you just think you're going to learn in like five cup of tea sessions or something. And her answer made so much sense five years later when, where, whenever later that I had the reo. And I realised that nobody can drag you to the pool. Mm. Nobody can drag you to the, the puna to drink from. Like you have to make the decision yourself to get there. And that doesn't mean asking someone to teach you. That's not you taking yourself to the puna. That's you telling them to meet you there mm. and filling the cup for you to drink from. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You have to make the decision yourself. And she she did that to us because we were uncomfortable and confronted by that answer. And to look back on it now, you know, no, we actually needed to do that ourselves and come back. And now we work together all the time. So, you know, she's... She's now able to work with us on all of our productions as the real consultant, and we are developing scripts together for certain things. And if I ever thought that that would happen when I was in that lounge in Titirangi, <laughs> I would—I honestly didn't ever foresee that coming. 
So, um, yeah, Te Hau Mihiata is another huge one. And probably the biggest influence in my life is my mum. Um, yeah, my mum. She's so reserved and unassuming and humble and modest and selfless. To a point sometimes I think, man, sometimes you need to think about yourself. You know? <laughs> She's so busy thinking about everybody else, about me, about my brother, about my children, her mokopuna. Um, she needs time to think about herself too. But then I think maybe this is what she really loves. Like this is her serving herself. I'm not sure, but she's a huge influence in my life because she was a single mum with very little in a housing New Zealand house and she dedicated her whole life when my brother and I were a child to giving us opportunity and to giving us... um, education so we could make decisions about what opportunities we wanted to be in or not. And Mm -hmm. so um, my mum is a huge influence in my life and, um, yeah, everything I do is for her and for my tamariki. Mm. Mm. Speaking of your tamariki, what is your hope for the future of Indigenous women? I just want... um, us to be comfortable in our own skin and truly feel we understand ourselves. And once we know, understand that, we know how to move forward. Mm. And so if I talk about my tamariki, but all my children, they're three girls, so I don't have any boys, <laughs> they're three girls. And when I think about them as young women, I want them to know who they are and be really confident about that and unapologetic about that and um, feel equipped with enough um, security and self-esteem and belief in their own knowledge bases and belief in their own culture and in their language and in their customs that they know how to move in the world. And so I suppose that's a huge aspiration I have for my girls and for Indigenous women, Māori women. And um, I also want to talk about men here too, because I I believe that we need the balance. Mm. And, you know, when we think about Rangi and Papa, they are a singularity. They are one, Rangi and Papa. We, with our English or Western lens, we understand rangi and papa as duality to appear. But with our Māori lens, rangi and papa are one entity, the um, our eponymous ancestors. Mm. And so um, I think it's so important that our women are supported by strong, uh, confident high self-esteem men as well because we need to operate in a balanced singularity um, together. And so when I think about my daughters, I don't think about them in isolation as themselves, as women. Mm. I actually think about them and the potential partners that they have. Hey, and maybe men might not be their (laughs) choice as an adult, and that's okay too. I don't mean the men, the balance of men and women in a romantic um, relationship. I just mean as Maori, and so I think, um, I think 
being strong women is really important and having strong men around us too to create a unified singularity is really important. And so, yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, that brings us to the end of our corridor. Um, and I really, I almost like don't want to finish this corridor. <laughs> I'm sure that happens with everybody. I know, I know, and I'm just thinking, how do you how do you have a part two with the same nuku number? Um, <laughs> maybe we need to think about other ways that we can continue nuku korero, um that doesn't limit you to having one podcast or one story in the puka puka. <laughs> um, but I do really want to thank you for your korero today. I have thoroughly enjoyed this korero. Thank you for sharing about your whanau, um, about your journey and and uh, just really choice mahi men. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm just really grateful to be um, selected as a nuku <laughs> number 38 people number 38 <laughs> number 38 nuku number 38 in the world I have to add <laughs> so I feel really privileged to have been able to share you know and it's it's awesome having an opportunity to unpack some of the stuff that goes on behind that people mm. don't know about you know they see the stuff that the the rest of the world sees but the thinking being able to actually unpack and speak about the thinking behind the things that um we do or pursue in our life has um, been an awesome opportunity so i'm very grateful thank you kia ora, tēnā koe. Ai, kia ora.